welcome to the debut episode of the Grad Life Game Changers podcast. This is the podcast that gives you an insight into the lives of high-achieving world-class individuals who have excelled in their fields with first-hand experiences and lessons to share. Find out what the keys to their success is and what habits and routines they employ to keep them there. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by one of Ireland's most well-known venture capital investors, someone who has done a huge amount to try and lobby the Irish government in improving the ecosystems for entrepreneurs and early-stage Irish startups. Brian Caulfield, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Finn. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, to kick it off, I was doing a bit of uh, research on you beforehand, and I was just looking through uh, your Twitter followers, and Liverpool Football Club actually came up as one. <laughs> Is there any, uh, <laughs> any backstory to that? Are you friends with John Henry or something? No, no. I've been a Liverpool supporter since I was about four years old, so... Uh, uh, I, I can I can say that I've followed Liverpool through through ups and downs for for a very long time. Uh, a bit of a down at the moment, but hey, we finally got a Premiership title, so that's something. I know I've, I've, I'm a suffering supporter as well. Well, uh, last season was pretty incredible, but uh, I think um, we can sort of accept the way the season is because it's empty stadiums and we got the. Got our holy grail last year, so we're kind of we're willing to put up with a a, a short a short term slump. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about sort of daily habits and routines. The the game changes podcast is the the idea, I guess, of for us is to sort of study high achievers, high performers like yourself. Have you any routines or habits that you've um, that have become like sort of anchors around your success or just around your daily routine or anything like that that you've stuck to? So I, I'd say, to be honest, that generally speaking, I'm not great with a uh, routine. And I think um, a lot of creative people aren't, you know, um, but what I have always tried to do is actually impose a little bit of discipline on myself. And, and when I when I do that, it certainly makes a difference. So, I mean, even through lockdown, I, I've made a point of, you know, I get up at seven o'clock every morning, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think especially during a time like now that that kind of routine uh, re really does help. Um, I think the other thing that's kind of hugely important is how you deal with other people you know and for me uh, i've i've always tried to, to kind of to grow other people and i think most uh, i think i think life and certainly being an entrepreneur is actually a team sport and you know a crucial thing is your ability to give other people the opportunity to, to 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 grow and that's how you get leverage as well and i think leverage um is is possibly the most important thing in terms of your your ability to succeed in the long term as uh, uh, as an entrepreneur for sure um I'd like to ask you about the dot-com crash because uh, I was sort of studying your career and episodes you've lived through and the dot-com crash I think was such a unique period that uh, no one in my generation or anyone probably in our audience could relate to. Um, 
firstly, what was it like uh, living through that? Because you're very much on the front lines of it. And then mm. can you see anything like that ever happening again? Um, so what was it like living through it? It, it was quite crazy. I mean, uh, I, I, I've kind of told this story before, but in late 1999, um, my company was supposed to merge with an American company called Paylinx. And Lehman Brothers, who, uh, who went bust in 2008 in, in that Great Recession, but uh, Lehman Brothers were going to take us public on the NASDAQ market in May of 2000. And uh, they were explaining to us that we'd go public at $400 million valuation and would more or less immediately trade up to a billion. And there wasn't any question about it. We didn't have to achieve anything to get there. It was something that would just kind of happen uh, automatically, you know. And at the time, the two companies combined probably had no more than about $15 million of revenue, you know. So it, it, it made no sense in terms of the, the fundamentals of the, uh, of, of the business. Um, as it turned out, what, what actually happened was that uh, the first big blip in the market was in March of that year, March of 2000. And uh, it, it quickly became apparent that it wasn't going to be possible to go public in, uh, in May. Uh, Paylinks ended up being sold to CyberSource we were sold, or we, we, we sold the company to Trintech, who at the time were also uh, public on the NASDAQ market. Um, Trintech's stock price had been $75 a share. Uh, when we did the deal, it was about 22. At Christmas that year, it was about $10. Um, I, I sold a chunk of stock at Christmas that year, and I think I sold it at $10.50 a share. And I remember saying to my wife, it couldn't go any lower. Uh, three months later, it was 40 cents a share. And we'd sold the company for stock. So uh, as they say, easy come, easy go, you know. Um, so it was a, a truly insane kind of period. Um, I, I'm not going to say that something similar could never happen again. And, you know, for example, I do think that there are, you know, signs of a similar kind of bubble in cryptocurrency and NFTs, you know, uh, I, I would be hugely skeptical of, uh, of, of those markets. Um, but I think it's unlikely to happen at the same scale again, because um, in, in the dot-com bubble, it was incredibly broad. If you were anything to do with tech or you could tell any kind of internet story, uh, you know, your valuation exploded. Um, I think 
the bubbles that we've seen in more recent times, for example, around kind of consumer internet companies uh, were much, much narrower. You know, they, they, they weren't uh, as kind of broadly based. Um, I mean, Fife's, the, uh, the, the fruit company, uh, they launched, <clears throat> excuse me, a, 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 a kind of a, an online marketplace for fruit called World of Fruit. And uh, that kind of, uh, you know, dramatically increased in valuation virtually instantly with no real substance whatsoever. And I don't think we're seeing, uh, we're, we're seeing that kind of thing happening at the moment, you know. And I think the companies, there are companies that are very highly valued, but typically they do have a business model and they do have customers and growth. And uh, you didn't even need those things in the dot-com uh, boom. I'd actually like to pick your brains on something about that. Um, I've just started sort of investing and creating my own portfolio and everybody always tells you make sure it's diverse, make sure you have a diverse portfolio. And yeah. it seems like one of the big issues with the dot-com crash was that these tech companies were just totally overvaluated because everybody thought the future was these, we're, we're these internet companies. The internet's the future. Every company's going to have to be on the internet in the future. Therefore, put a dot-com after your name and your value exploded even if you had no revenue to justify it. However, now um, you look at your, like the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, um, it's really hard to see these guys going anywhere. And if you look at like the high performers in the NASDAQ, even if you do think they're overvalued based on um, based on what they're doing in terms of growth or in terms of revenue, again, it's like, I don't see these tech companies not exist. Um, and my sort of view on investing now is like, I buy companies I like, if they're all tech, that for me, it's like, can you diversify within, the, within tech itself? So maybe not have everything in consumer tech, maybe have some things in B2B tech, or maybe not have everything in social media. Um, that's sort of my outlook now. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that and and whether you think, and you know, what, what you think of these tech companies at the moment, because they've had huge growth since the, the COVID pandemic. And some people are saying it's a bubble. I know that there was a, a bit of a correction there a week ago, but yeah, I'd just like to get your, your thoughts on that sort of hypothesis, I guess. So a couple of different things. I mean, the first thing I'd say is the tech as a sector. Um, you know, if, 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 if you want to make a bet, actually both from a career perspective, but also from an investment perspective, tech is absolutely the thing that I would bet on because um, I, I, I think companies will come and go but the value and importance of the tech sector is only going to increase, you know. Um, I'd perhaps be, you know, more skeptical on, if you like, the, the long-term future for companies that are big today. Um, I think one of the, the, the you know, to, to become a really big and successful company, you need to be a finely tuned machine that's very, very good at doing the same thing over and over again, you know, re repeatedly. 
And that's almost the exact opposite of kind of what startups and really highly innovative companies need to do, you know. So I think um, big companies are always under threat from new technologies emerging and new approaches emerging. Um, I also personally think that it's highly likely that there will be antitrust action against uh, some of the, the, the kind of the, the tech uh, goliaths of today. And I think that potentially will, will have an impact. Um, but I, 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 I don't think, I don't think uh, uh, Google is going to disappear anytime soon. And I think, you know, I, I'd be very comfortable investing across a spread of uh, tech companies. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there's, there's, there's no such thing as a sure bet in life, but uh, I, I'd be very comfortable that the future for the tech sector is very, very bright indeed, you know. Which um, uh, tech companies you like and are you excited by? Um, I've seen Pinterest has grown quite a lot in the last few, in the last uh, 12 months or so. Um, I'm trying to think of anything others that have, Fiverr as well, uh, I've noticed has really benefited from the pandemic era because it's um, freelancing and, and outsourcing. Which, uh, yeah. are there any up and comers you, you think could go on to possibly challenge the, the fangs? over the next few years? Um, I, I wouldn't see either of those companies as being kind of challengers to the, the fangs. Um, I think for, for me personally, my expertise is more in the enterprise technology space rather than uh, the consumer uh, consumer technology. So the kind of companies that, um, that, that, that I'd be kind of very excited about would be companies in the AI space, like, you, you know, UiPath, which is robotic process automation. I think that's going to be a huge trend. And I mean, it's already, it's already a large company, but I think that's a company that has the potential to be a kind of a Salesforce scale uh, business over the over the next few years. Um, full disclosure, Draper Esprit are an investor in that company, so uh, so so I do have a kind of a connection uh, connection there. But I think um, that's a really interesting business in terms of. Um, the portfolio of companies that, that I was an investor in uh, when, when I was at Draper Esprit. Uh, Graphcore, I think, is another company with absolutely enormous potential. Uh, that could be, you know, if you like, it's an NVIDIA killer. And I think NVIDIA's market cap these days is, you know, probably ballpark a couple of hundred billion, you know. Um, in terms of who I think is potentially challenged, uh, I'd be a little bit worried about Intel, for example. Now, it has been a very adaptable company over the years, 
but it no longer has, I think, the absolutely rock solid uh, PC and server franchise that that it had, you know, and uh, it, it hasn't really been that successful into kind of in in terms of moving into new markets. And how um, Draper's Free tried to like there's obviously a huge amount of uh, funds globally. Um, how what what do Draper's Free? How did they distinguish themselves? What 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 did they do differently to other funds out there? So I think the thing that really distinguishes us now is that actually we no longer operate a fund structure. In in 2016, we went public on the Dublin and London uh, stock markets. And um, I suppose the idea of that was that we'd been seeing that a lot of the companies that we were invested in actually take longer to build than you think. And actually Movidius, which was an Irish company, uh, is a great example of that. It was acquired by Intel in 2016, late in 2016, but it had taken 13 years to get to that stage, you know? And conventional venture capital funds are 10-year funds. So a company that takes 13 years to build doesn't fit well into that structure. So we were increasingly coming to the conclusion that the conventional uh, VC structure brings with it a lot of constraints that we felt didn't really enable us to optimize returns. And that we also felt in many cases kind of impeded your ability to really achieve the full potential of, um, you know, some of the businesses that we were investing in. So if you like our proposition to investors now, or sorry, to, to founders, to founders of companies is we aren't a 10 year fund. So we're not constrained in terms of how long we continue to hold the stock nor are we restricted to investing, you know, only X percent of our fund in one company. So we can continue to support companies over a much longer period of time and with more capital than, than, uh, than a conventional VC fund. So I think those are the things that really uh, distinguish us as a, as, as a firm now. Um, but it's a very good question, by the way, because if you think of it this way, what I'm selling as a VC is money and nothing is more commoditized than money. You know? uh, so uh, one of the big challenges in the VC world is how do you stand out? You know what 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 makes you 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 unique? Because of course your your money is as green as anybody else's. You know. Um, what I also like about VCs that are um, uh, publicly traded uh, is that it, it it sort of, in my mind anyway, it nearly democratizes the uh, ability to invest in early stage companies. Because uh, if you take someone who doesn't have the means to be an angel investor. Um, but they have uh, interest in startups, they can buy stock stocks in a VC they really like, which I think is, is super cool. And uh, yeah. 
it's it's possibly the only way right now anyway available to us to kind of get exposure to that kind of early stage stuff yeah and i totally agree i mean that was definitely in our thinking as well at the time that we were uh, that we were planning to go public you know and unfortunately a lot of the regulation of funds means that even you know even if you had the money to invest in a conventional venture capital fund it's quite likely that they wouldn't be allowed to take your money so i think people are kind of being disenfranchised in fact by the the conventional model uh, so i'd be very very positive on the public vc model i think it democratizes access to the asset class um and uh it's also liquid you know a conventional vc fund you you kind of invest your money over 10 years you hope that maybe after five or six years you might start to see some of it coming back but 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 you might not and there's no uh, easy way to sell your position if if you need to get the cash whereas obviously draper esprit esprit stock you can you can buy it today and sell it tomorrow if if that's what you want to do you know the um the, the business model that you outlined which draper spree um took on in terms of looking at companies over uh, a 10 or 15 year life lifespan instead of um instead of a five to ten year play uh, it sounds like a very, very rewarding way of looking at companies and a really rewarding way to work do you still get the same sort of buzz that you did when you first started in vc and in, in investing in an early stage company that you have huge ambitions for or the same uh, the same energy when you just receive a great pitch from from an early stage company or with being a vc and seeing so many presentations on a on a weekly basis does uh does the, ro the romance of it so to speak uh, slightly die out over time um i i i suppose it does and i i actually stepped back a couple of years ago from the day to day in draper esprit so i'm not uh, i'm not i'm not very active with draper esprit uh, today but i'm still um, looking at an awful lot of companies and mainly kind of angel investing and uh helping companies with their fundraising rounds um, I have to say, I still get a huge buzz out of, you know, uh, a company that you, you just kind of start to get excited about. And it's a little bit tougher in, in COVID because it is difficult to, to uh, if you like, re replicate the experience of really being face to face with somebody. But one of the things that I always really like about my job was you know the times when you're sitting there listening to uh, a founder or a couple of co-founders or whatever and you're thinking to yourself god these people are really really impressive <laughs> you know um and i you know i mean i i'm an in investor uh, in a in a personal capacity not through draper esprit in a company called robotify 
And basically, when I invested, I think the two guys were 21. One of them had dropped out of college. The other one was trying to finish uh, finish their degree while, while running the company at the same time. But I was just incredibly impressed with their thinking about their own business model and the kind of the self critical thought about how do we improve the business model um, and you know it was just impossible not to be kind of excited about uh, about what they were trying to do at the same time recognizing that uh, there were you know lots of challenges for them to overcome and you know uh, a, a significant level of inexperience um but as i say nonetheless just impossible not to be uh, not to be excited and engaged uh, by 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 the team you know i uh, i briefly uh, haven't on covid haven't yet uh, what do you think the, the sort of the future of work looks like in a post-pandemic world? Uh, is it going to be full remote working? Are we going to go back to offices or do you think it'll be a hybrid between the two? Uh, I think it'll be a blended model, a hybrid model. Um, and I think it will differ for different people. You know, I think actually a lot of young people do want to go back to the office because, you know, being in the workplace is actually a big part of their social life as as well as their uh, you know their their professional life and i i think you know what one of the, one of the lessons of the the pandemic is that it's incredibly difficult to replicate serendipity in the virtual world you know and lots of providers of conference software have tried, and in my view, none of them have really succeeded, you know. So um, I think people actually value, they do value uh, human connection. So I, I, I think it's, it's going to be a blended model. And as I said, I think young people will tend to probably spend more more time in the office. Uh, older people will uh, mix and match a bit more. We uh, we briefly touched on AI earlier um, about how that's sort of one of your areas, which um, one of your areas of expert expertise, I guess. But um, it's also something which uh, Elon Musk, I know, is one of the uh, Sort of most outspoken critics saying it, it could sort of lead to a, a dystopian future, and uh, the idea of of full employment is just not going to exist really in, in a few years. Are you excited by AI or are you terrified by it? Um, uh, myself and Elon probably part company there. Um, so uh, the first thing I'll say about that is uh, I've been involved in the AI world since I was about 21. My final year project in college was actually an, an AI uh, project. And I can tell you, we are so far away from what's called a, a general AI that it isn't funny. You know, we are, we are miles 
from uh, any uh, any risk of AI becoming sentient or anything like that. Humans are, are still the superior beings for the for the for the time. For for the foreseeable future, uh, we we can certainly park the robot overlord worries for for quite a few years yet. Um, ha having said that. I'm not suggesting for a second that there aren't risks with AI technology. And I mean, one of the, the big risks that, uh, that I'd be concerned about is the bias that is encoded in data uh, actually ends up being encoded in AI systems. And I think that, for example, is, is a real risk that we need to be very, very uh, very conscious of, and, and there have been, you know, real world examples uh, of that already. Um, more generally, I think the idea that technology will make humans redundant is it, it gets trotted out on a regular basis. You know, you, you go back to the Luddites, who, who smashed weaving machinery and cloth making uh, machinery because they believed it was going to destroy their, their livelihoods. And, uh, um, you, you know, if I go back to the 1970s when I was a kid in school, there was huge concern that labor-saving devices were, were going to mean that there wouldn't be enough work to go around, and that, if you like, work would have to be rationed in the future because there'd be kind of so little for people to do. And what happened in reality is that actually people ended up working harder and harder, you know. Um, so I, 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 of course, there will be people who will be displaced by AI technology uh, in exactly the same way as there were people who were displaced by mechanical diggers and you know uh, steam-powered looms and so on. And we definitely need to be conscious of that and need to, to, to manage that as, as a society. Um, but I don't think AI is, if you like, a fundamentally more dangerous technology in that respect than steam power was. Another concern uh, people have about the future is the amount of power tech companies have. Um, Facebook, I guess, is beginning to be seen by many as a sort of a malevolent organization that's uh, using people's data for their own gain and has become too powerful. What's your opinion on these social media companies and, and big tech? Uh, so I, I, I don't believe that, that Facebook or any of the other uh, kind of big tech companies are in and of themselves malevolent or bad. But I think when any organization that is, if you like, purely commercially motivated gets to that scale in society, it, it causes uh, it causes problems, you know. Um, as I was saying earlier, 
personally, I believe that some form of antitrust action against big tech companies is, is inevitable. I, I'm not going to say it's going to be next year or the year after, but I do think it's inevitable. And um, I, you know, personally, I think it's probably a good thing and a necessary thing. I do think we need to have some level of, if you like, democratic control ultimately over, uh, you know, entities that are as large and, and, and powerful as, as big tech companies have, have become. Finally, uh, wrap up the interview. Uh, we ask all of the guests on the Gradlock podcast the books that have influenced them most in their life. Which ones or one would you would you list? Uh, if I had to pick one, it's a book called How We Know What Isn't So, The Fallibility of Human Reason in Everyday Life by a guy called Thomas Gilovich. And um, uh, quite a few people will probably have read Thinking Fast and Slow uh, by Daniel Kahneman. Actually, Kahneman references Gilovich extensively and to me, the, the Gilovich book is a, is, is a much better book in a lot of ways. It's, 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 it's a simpler book, a more straightforward book. Um, and I, I would say hugely influential on my way of thinking. And I, I, think, I think one of the most important skills for people to, to learn is, if you like, how to think, you know, um, and uh, I think we're, we're actually the pandemic has kind of highlighted a lot of the risks we face as a society when people don't know how to think, you know. Um, so that would be my my kind of number one recommendation. Great stuff. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Finn. Nice to talk to you. Cheers.